Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Patricia Gustafson. Uh, We're at the Linfield College Library. Uh, It's August 9th, 2019. Thanks so much for joining us, Patricia. (coughs) Excuse me. (laughs) Well, let's start by asking you today, uh, why wine? Why vineyards? Well, years ago, uh, when I was living in Brazil, the Foreign Service, uh, the boss's wife came and said, here, do your liquor order. And I remember looking at her and saying, well, I know quite a bit about hard liquor, but nothing about wine. So she said, oh, just buy your reds from France and your whites from Germany. So after she left, I looked at the brochure and discovered that our government had a very nice price break for foreign service people. So I decided, well, I'll buy the most expensive reds from, they were only about, if I remember correctly, $1.80 a bottle or something. And so I bought some cases of red from Burgundy, and then I went to the whites, <coughs> same technique, but most expensive whites. And then since we were on the mouth of the Amazon on the equator, storing the wine I discovered was a problem, you know, keeping it cool. But the people ahead of me were Portuguese. We rented a Portuguese house and in between maids quarters they had put a a wine cellar. So it kept quite cool. So that was my introduction to wine. as I said, when you start drinking wine at that level, it's awfully hard to go downhill. <laughs> when we got back to this country and I look at the wine prices, oh, <laughs> another great awakening. <laughs> what was your first impression when you, when you had some wine? Oh, I loved it. Yeah. But I only like wine with food. Mm-hmm. I'm not the kind of person that can sit and sip wine. And most of the wines that we grow around here are food wines, mm-hmm. we call them. Mm-hmm. And that excellent. Once I love to cook, so I love to pair the wine with the cooking. I think if you get into wine, you better like food. <laughs> so you mentioned being in Brazil. Tell us some of the other sort of stops along the way before you got to your your vineyard. Before we got to the vineyard mm-hmm. from Brazil, mm-hmm. oh, stops along the way. Well, came back to Portland, and I got my master's at Portland State and started uh, teaching at uh, Lewis and Clark. I was in charge of the Language Institute there. So of course, some more exposure to some good food and good wine. (laughs) I used to bribe the students by telling them they could come to my house and cook. (laughs) And I would furnish the wine or whatever if they were legally. (laughs) And so that was a very, I was there for seven years. And then, it came time for my husband to retire, and he's very hyper. And I thought, oh boy, <laughs> he's going to have to do something. <laughs> so we, I found beautiful property, and, and he would look at it. The nursery didn't appeal to him, and we saw a crazy ad in the paper. If you like bluebirds and something else, come out and look at this property. But you'll have to have four-wheel drive to get up the road. <laughs> and the ruts were like, that's no exaggeration. <laughs> And there was a 20-acre parcel that had been taken off, a larger parcel, which is now Beaufrere. Uh, of course. 
they came a year before we did, mm -hmm. and so up we went. And <laughs> we asked, well, what could we do here to keep him busy? And we looked, and he, of course he had just started planting grape plants, so we hired a consultant to come out, oh, yes, this is wine property. So away we went. <laughs> so at that point, you had never had any experience growing grapes? No, but I had grown up on a farm, a okay. ranch in northern Idaho. I was a, kind of a wild child. <laughs> we had uh, animals that we put on the uh, BLM land. Mm -hmm. You could, in those days, if your uh, property was contiguous, you could uh, use the land for nothing. So my father would send us up there with 30 or 40 head of cattle. And he'd send us up to check on them, and he wouldn't let us use a, a saddle because it was terribly brushy. The Idaho burn in, I believe, 1910 had just reduced it to a lot. So we'd go up bareback and go up and check on the cattle. And I'd make my horse swim in the beaver dams because I wanted to know what it felt like to feel <laughs> on a horse swimming. <laughs> I called myself a wild child because a doctor called me that the other day. And he said, well, I still think you're a wild woman. I said, Maybe, but that's how I grew up, pretty wild. But my father had a great A dairy and accumulated 800 acres and was a very talented farmer because when he went to high school, there wasn't a high school, so the University of Nebraska at Lincoln had a high school there. And I looked at his texts, all of his high school texts are college level high school texts, so he had quite a high school education. Wow. The men came out and they graduated eighth grade and asked his father, who was very wealthy at the time, if he couldn't go to high school. He said, no, he doesn't need to. So he went to the university that, and got a job stoking the furnace to pay for his room and board. And then when he got out of high school, of course, his father's attitude hadn't changed. And so he didn't go to college. <laughs> so tell me about getting the process of getting started, uh, especially at such a later part of life and deciding to put a vineyard in. Tell me what the first steps were. Well, we, having lived on a farm, I said to my husband, you know, any kind of farming is a lot of work. But oh, he thought it was great. So he, of course, he had tried making wine at home and champagne and this really appealed to him. So he retired a little early and in those days, we had heard about phylloxera, which you know is the root louse that the French discovered and took back to, gave themselves phylloxera. But, uh, so we would go to uh, different people's places that were established and we would get uh, stars. Mm -hmm. And most of the time that was when the pruning season, which would be January, February mainly, and stand there in the cold and cut off sticks with three buds. And, that's how we started. We planted a lot of uh, Chardonnay. It's called the old California clone, the 108 clone, which, nice, which likes a nice hot fall, mm -hmm. which we didn't have 30 years ago, but maybe once in 10 years. But uh, a friend of ours sneaked some of our Chardonnay into a brown bag tasting in Seattle, and it won. So he dubbed it Whistling Ridge Lagiche. So we knew, well, we've got something that's good, but we had to uh, replant. Well, we planted Chardonnay, and then we planted uh, Pinot Noir. And then I got the idea, you know what? I think Pinot Gris would be a good bread and butter wine. And by that, I thought, 
wine, Americans are not wine drinkers, so you need to entice them in. And this, in my opinion, is a very nice, pleasant, easy wine for a beginning wine drinker to drink, and it has a sophisticated name, and so we planted an acre and a half about Pinot Gris. My neighbor at the time was Autumn Wind. He just had a fit. He said, Patricia, he was a retired banker, very cautious, and very nice. Oh, we'll see, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> but everybody had an opinion that everybody didn't have a lot of experience yet, so we easily told each other what to do. <laughs> <laughs> so we started out with the Chardonnay, and then some Pinot Gris and Pinot Noir. We're mainly Pinot Noir now. Talking about early days, you were the, the idea was just you were going to farm grapes, sell well, them to others. At that time, uh, the uh, different people were offering seminars, and so I think we took every seminar we possibly could to learn about uh, growing wine grapes. And I discovered that they'd always finish every seminar with some tastings. I realized I had a pretty good nose because I'd always have the same three top wines that the so-called experts had. And I say experts like that because it's a very subjective taste for wine, you know. So don't let anybody ever convince you your taste isn't as good as theirs. <laughs> and, uh, but I wasn't always the, agreed with the, what was one, two, and three. But mm -hmm. so I thought, oh, okay. My husband, I discovered, had absolutely no taste <laughs> at all. So, and he acknowledged it, so that was easy. And uh, so that we went from there. But then I also, or Oregon wine growers hired a woman from, uh, well, she was Portuguese, but she'd been trained in France, mm -hmm. in Burgundy. She came out and she gave me oh, all kinds of things to read and study because I, I love to grow things. And, I, and then she discovered, I made the mistake of telling her that I could read French. So she gave me a lot of information in French. When I got through, I said, I think I've got another master's degree in <laughs> viticulture. But uh, she was wonderfully helpful. So our vineyard is very much a Burgundian vineyard to this day. And it's a little different from a lot of the others you might see because she taught us one thing that the laterals in August and September are what really ripen the fruit. So don't cut off the laterals. So we never hedge on the sides. We only hedge the top. And so, you know, you'll see. So we don't look really well groomed. <laughs> and then she came over and said, we have a fellow getting a master's degree. And uh, he's found out that there are, I think, either 11 or 13 beneficial insects in the vineyard. And he would like to finish his degree and use your vineyard. And I said, sure, I'd like something like that. So he came up with the idea that uh, we would mow one row and let the other row grow when it got ready to go to seed. And it would mow when the other one would come up. So we've had people come up and think about buying these early years, buying our wine, and they're looking at our vineyard and shaking their head <laughs> around leaving because we don't look too classy to these people. You don't, you know, look, you don't have those nice, neat hedgerows. In, in my opinion, those nice, neat hedgerows stress your plants, and so you come up with a wine that, to me, is more intense higher in alcohol, which I don't think is a Burgundian wine from what I learned. So, 
That's our style. And I, of course, <laughs> Charlie shouldn't say this, Michael Letzel and I are very good friends. And when he gets really irritated with me, he says, yes, mother, or no, mother. <laughs> but uh, we're very good friends. His boys are like the kids growing up. I gave them a few lectures on what they should not be doing <laughs> a few times. But Tell me about building those relationships in the industry, especially as you were looking to sell grapes in the early days. How did you find people to buy your grapes? Well, we had a very close-knit group. In those days, we were all trying to help each other. And so we had, at that time, OWA had sort of what I would call neighborhood mm -hmm. groups. And uh, we had a very nice group of people. We had picnics, and we socialized, and had a lot of fun. And uh, we would help each other out and spread the word around. And so it, it, we weren't, didn't compete with each other. We were trying to help each other because we were all starting from sort of ground zero and going up. And uh, that's how we got started. And uh, that, oh, I can't remember how many years, but finally that those disbanded and it's all the huge OWA now, which I think is a little bit sad. I think those neighborhood groups are, are nice to have. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the, the area you're in has grown up quite a bit since you started at, out in Ribbon Ridge now, as it's called. Tell me a little bit about watching it grow up around you. Well, Ribbon Ridge ABA, people got decided, as you probably know, to divide the state up into smaller ABAs. Willamette Valley is rather a huge, and I'm glad they did, but uh, Ribbon Ridge is unique in the fact that most of the soil all around is volcanic. And for some reason, Ribbon Ridge is a little push-up of ocean sedimentary soils. So if you have land in the Ribbon Ridge AVA, your wine tastes different from the other wines. And it's becoming quite sought after. And the price and value of the land has done nothing but go up. So that makes it unique. I think someday, I keep telling newcomers and people who will listen that I think it will be world famous someday. And now Beaufrere is, was, uh, Michael had two partners. One was his brother, Robert Parker. I'm sure you're familiar with that name, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, another man from Canada. And then the two of them decided to sell out and they sold out to a large company, what, second or third largest in the world or something, it's called Henri. But they still maintain their interest, and now his sons are taking over. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about the name Whistling Ridge and where that came from. Well, my husband, when we were starting, my husband and I, we were working. And we'd come home and change our clothes at 5 o'clock and work till 10 o'clock. And two or three times at work, my boss caught me sound asleep at my lunch hour at my desk. <laughs> but we came home one afternoon, we get home about five, and my son was there putting in a dog run for us. And uh, he said, I know what you can call this place. It was August. We bought it the 4th, moved in the 4th of July. He said, I, Whistling Ridge. And I said, why is that? He said, every day at four o'clock, that wind just comes whistling over that ridge. We're so in sort of a chute. It comes up the Shehalem Valley is where we are, and it's, and so, and I, 
always tried to educate, having grown up on a farm, and my father was a good farmer, I said, you people have to keep figuring in the wind. You know, you have to realize how influential the wind is, especially in the fall on your crops. And uh, so that, that was the name we gave it. Like it. And then uh, we had a daughter who was living in uh, Italy. Her husband was in the army. And uh, we went to visit her and we brought back a, a mask, you know, their committee, the art, they mask for the wind. And so that's what's on the label is the mask for the wind. Speaking of labels, so at some point you decided to make your own wine instead of just selling grapes. So tell me about that decision and process. Well, we never have made our own wine commercially. Okay. We make plenty for <laughs> private consumption, <laughs> which is also quite good. But uh, we, uh, my son, when he was going through college, was a waiter. How many people put themselves through college are waiters. And, and they, it was that the Red, Red Lion decided to train some of them in the wine business. And so he took that training with some friends. And that's how we met Marcus. So we've sort of grown up with these young men that have grown up in the industry. Marcus, you mean Marcus Goodfellow? Marcus Goodfellow, yes. He's Goodfellow Family Cellars now. And so what is the relationship between Goodfellow Family Cellars and, and Whistling Ridge? He always harvests, gets all our grapes. Okay. And he'll come and say, Patricia, this is as close to a Burgundian vineyard as you'll ever get. <laughs> he's happy with our vineyard, but he's very much involved in the, in the vineyard. Uh, we decided early on that your winemaker should be you should have an intimate relationship and he should be out here with hands on looking at that vineyard. One time when we were selling wine to, um, no, I can't think of his name, Ken Wright, mm -hmm. he sent somebody out, I'll never forget, on a Tuesday. And he came back and he said, well, the numbers are all okay. He said, but it's not quite ready. And I said, okay, but I always, when it comes close to harvest, I always go out in the early morning and taste and get some samples and take my hydrometer and see what the sugar is, that kind of thing. So he left on Tuesday, so I went out Wednesday morning and tasted, and I went back out on Thursday morning and tasted. They were ready. I could tell they had made some kind of a, just a change that chemically the chemist can't detect. It's a taste thing. Mm -hmm. It's very subjective again. But So I called Ken up about 10 o'clock and said, Ken, these grapes are ready to pick. He said, I just had my fellow out there Tuesday. And so we started to argue. And uh, it got a little bit intense for a while. And I finally said, all right, Ken, just this one time, will you please just please me and come out and send your guy back out again? and have him do some tasting and take some samples into you and do it again. So about one o'clock, ring, 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 Patricia, can you have a crew there to pick tomorrow morning? <laughs> sure can. <laughs> so, but I had learned that because I'd been helping my neighbors. And the first lesson I learned helping them, they had grapes from different vineyards, was there was such a difference in taste from vineyard to vineyard. Mm -hmm. So the, when the French talk about terroir, they know what they're talking about. The land gives the food the taste. And, you know, I, I knew that from farming because my father was always looking for a special spot to grow this and this and this and then they taste. And, and so that's very much, again, it's subjective, but the so-called experts seem to agree on what's good, so. <laughs> Tell me about the terroir of Whistling Ridge then. How would you describe it? 
Well, one of the interesting things is Michael had someone come out early on and dig pits and so many feet apart and then they'd test the soil and he came and he said, you know, you go, you don't have to go very many feet and the soil's all different again. Where we have layer, layers of silty clay loam and I can see when we first plant there'll be areas where I keep saying they can't get their feet down to moisture, they can't get through the rock or the shale and you just wait it out. I've got one spot that I don't know if it'll ever get down. It looks pretty sick by about August, not very happy. I always say that they're not happy when you look at them, mm -hmm. but uh, that was part of the uh, learning. Mm -hmm. So the vineyard is uh, we're from anywhere from 450 to 500 feet because we're like this. Mm -hmm. And so different parts of the vineyard are very different from other parts. And so I always became a believer, I think a blend is always better than, so we're very careful when we pick, we label what part of the vineyard the grapes are from and the rows so that Marcus can. And I really admire the talent of a really talented winemaker and of how they can blend, how they, that's a, it's an art, well it's science too, but it's also art, it's, it's a taste thing again, that subjective mm -hmm. tasting. We had, how we learned that was early on, we had bought new barrels and one of the people we were selling grapes through had bought four new French barrels, medium toast, brand new, and he put our grapes, the juice from our grapes in those four barrels and the phone rings, he said, Patricia, you and Dick come over, I want you to taste these barrels. He, I said, why? He said, just come over. I said, okay. So we went over and he made us sit down in chairs and gave us glasses and he gave us a glass from the first barrel. He said, now these barrels are all the same, right? Certified by the French. I said, yeah, but you know those Latins. I said, one day they might have a few more glasses of wine. The toast might be a little more intense here. And I, was, I knew after living in Brazil five years. So. Okay, he said, well, I just taste it. But each barrel was different. Same everything. Everything was the same except the barrels. That's what we all found so interesting. So again, your barrels. Barrels are extremely important that you put your wine in and that's where I think a lot of the talent of the winemaker comes in being able to taste his barrels and decide how to blend or not to blend. And especially in our vineyard because from place to place it changes so. You've talked a little bit about the, sort of all the family who've been a, a part of your of Whistling Ridge over the years, the kind of family operation. Tell me a little bit about, about that, how that came to be and sort of all the different people who've been a part of it. Well, we always envisioned that there would be a family operation. We're a family, though, of teachers. Their uh, father taught uh, drawing and painting and uh, I've always been a college teacher. I love to teach people to write. I like to get inside their heads. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I just find teaching writing very interesting and very challenging. But uh, then the oldest one was uh, superintendent at uh, Woodburn. He just retired and he's the one that lives a mile from us and he has a couple of acres of grapes and he calls that Whistling Ridge North. Then the next son, at first everybody was enthused, you know, they were out digging holes and crawling around planting, but that enthusiasm kind of <laughs> dissipated. 
So the next son went off. He uh, has real allergy problems, so he's always lived on the coast mm -hmm. and taught. And, and since both boys were very talented soccer players, we were in Brazil in the days, days of Pelé. They've always coached soccer and been principal, superintendent. Mm -hmm. And then the, the third one is a daughter. She decided to get married, and they have taught abroad for about 18 years, so they were out of the picture. Then the last one, uh, she's always been there and helpful and active, but and she'll probably uh, take over. Uh, my husband is 92.8, so <laughs> and he's not going to be around much longer. His health is going pretty fast. Mm. So, and I said, I am not living up here by myself, <clears throat> and I'm not going to take care of this vineyard anymore. So the oldest and the youngest will probably take it over. So the hope is that it will stay in the family for at least yes, a while Yes, I'm longer. hoping. If not, I'll come back and haunt them. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so over the years, uh, as the vineyard has grown, you mentioned you mentioned putting in Pinot Gris, for example. Have you had uh, uh, have you thought about putting other things in? Has it pretty much always been the basic three grapes? Well, no, we tinker. Mm -hmm. Marcus makes what's called a blend. So we have uh, some rows, about eight rows of. Uh, uh, Riesling, mm -hmm. and then we have a few Sauvignon Blanc sitting around, and a few of this and that, and so he harvests all that, and some Pinot Noir, and whatever's left over after harvest. He doesn't list all of them on the bottle, but he makes this white blend that is just so popular, it just, he, they can't keep it. And, and again, my theory, I always think the blend is better, but they're every kind of grape you can imagine, so that we've got a little bit of out there. <laughs> Tea green keeps it, keeps it interesting, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, that's why I like growing things. I decided whenever the French came out with their new clones, I would plant them on their own roots. And one time I planted about six in my garden, which I thought was good soil. At the end of the, in the spring, when I dug them up in the fall, they had roots three feet long. I couldn't believe it. But the French, I guess, found in one of their cobs, they had planted over the top of it that the uh, roots came down 50 feet. So the grapes will, I decided they're part weed and part plant, <laughs> especially the 667 and the 777. They reminded me of a rose bush. I know they're quite popular, but with some people. We have some of that. All of our Pinot Noir is several clones. Mm -hmm. The original clones that we started out with, you know, with, uh, then the French came up, and luckily they came up with a uh, Chardonnay clone that would ripen it early in the fall, which they call the Dijon clones. But I also planted those on their own roots. I like to see what they do as a plant and they, before you graft them. But we also were... Uh, Oregon State had, I think, four or five places as experimental sites, and they gave us uh, all the same clone but different rootstocks, replicas of seven, several times over. Hmm. And uh, then the first year, they didn't come out and prune them. I said, are you going to come out and prune them? No. I said, well, how can you see how they grew? Well, we just can't do it. So Patricia went out, <laughs> took a plastic bag, pruned the different ones, weighed it, you know, you want to see how they grow on these different clones. <laughs> they couldn't believe it. And I said, well, I said, that's what you should have done. 
So then the next year they came out and harvested the grapes and made some wine. And their conclusion was that uh, wine made from a grafted rootstock tastes better than wine on self-rooted. And I said to them after about, it's about 20 years now, I said, you know, you really should come out and make wine from these grapes now that they've been in all these years, but I can't get anybody interested in doing it. It's too bad. No follow through. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I talked to someone one time in the board, and oh, he thought that was a good idea, but I never <laughs> saw or heard of anybody now on. But they also, the uh, grapes that they gave us, gave us a couple of presents, Phylloxera and Dagger Nematodes. Oh. <laughs> so I got, had them come out to see what was wrong. I knew the plants, they were different. Mm -hmm. And they said, Dagger Nematodes, I got to pay $300 for them to give me that information <laughs> on plants that, they, that we paid for, that they... But uh, that was an interesting experiment with those. Tell me about dealing with that kind of, with all the kind of things that can go wrong in a vineyard. And clearly you've seen, you must have seen a lot over the years. How have you dealt with sort of powdery mildew and things like that? Well, mildew is always a problem. This year is an especially bad year for mildew. And so you, we use, uh, put a lot of sulfur on mm -hmm. up until as long as we possibly can. We try to be as organic as we can, but now we're uh, putting on a different, it's supposed to be, a safe chemical, I forget the name of it, because the mildew, my roses, I have roses all over, they, they, this is the first year I buy roses from the Oregon, and supposedly they don't get black spot in these diseases, but this year they all have black spot. They're not very happy. It's been a tough year for mildew, but again, I think because we have such wind flow, we, knock on wood, we haven't had a problem. We fight it, we're very careful. Marcus is honest, like, ah, you know. <laughs> don't get nervous, Marcus. We know, we're doing it every 10 days. <laughs> Tell me about the, the Oregon wine industry that you, you came into. You mentioned the Ribbon Ridge area and kind of watching it grow up. Tell me about like what Oregon wine industry seemed like when you came, became a part of it. Like how big was it? How, how important was it? How well known was it? It wasn't. And you know, most people were just selling locally. Mm -hmm. And the big push has always been to try to get the wine out, first nationally and then internationally, which I think they're quite successful in doing. Uh, Michael Etzel considers himself sort of an ambassador and he goes and, and I think uh, having people like uh, Henri invest in the area mm -hmm. helps a lot. Mm -hmm. So. It's uh, because, you know, the history, that first time they did a tasting in France and the Oregon wines were better than the French wines, it sort of made them sit up and take notice. Mm -hmm. But then Robert Parker, some of his claim to fame was that uh, he wasn't very popular with some of the friends because he went in there and he informed some of the uh, vineyards and wineries they were resting on their laurels and the qualities of their wine were not very good and so the government I believe gave him a medal but uh, he's retired now. Mm -hmm. he, last time I talked to him was uh, when Michael remarried his wife died of brain cancer and he remarried four or five years ago. Mm -hmm. and he was pretty, Robert Parker was pretty influential in both 
industries, of course. Yes, very influential. Yeah. You just say his name to people who are into wines, and they'll know. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so you mentioned that you've, you've seen it that is now more on the national, international stage. Was there a moment when, or a, a time when you kind of realized Oregon wine had sort of arrived or become a, a, a phenomenon? I don't think there's ever a moment, but it uh, always, at OPB, has a very nice, you've probably seen it, I've watched it several times. Um, I used to sing with uh, his wife, uh, Papa Pino. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think that it's just been a gradual thing and I think it's a, a struggle to just keep getting the wines out there and getting them. I still think people very much think that the French wines are the best, and maybe they are, but we're coming along. We've won a few prizes and outshone them a few times, so. But I think Oregon wines will do nothing but get better all the time, and I can't believe the growth. can't believe, I keep driving around just Yamhill County, and I think, I say to my husband, that hill's gonna be all vineyard one of these days. I said, that's gonna be all vineyard. I think the whole county's gonna be mostly vineyard. Mm -hmm. People are just buying. I went in, to, I had a um, hard valve put in at the end of April. And when I went in to meet the cardiology team, all they wanted to talk about was getting, helping get them buy some property out in Ribbon Ridge <laughs> and buying some, a view with a vineyard or a possible vineyard. I said, you know what, you guys? I said, I'm gonna put this down as a business meeting and take it off my taxes. <laughs> The ambassador to Ribbon Ridge, that's yes, what you are now. Yes, yeah, so, yes. <laughs> so you mentioned you see, you see positive things ahead for Oregon wine. Do you see the, the growth we've seen recently? Do you see that continuing into the future? Yes, I think it will continue. We, we had a real slowdown in the 80s. Mm -hmm. It was very hard. We had a hard time financially keeping going, but it's been nothing but moving on. And we have no problem selling our grapes. The vineyard has a good reputation mm -hmm. with certain people. Is <laughs> <laughs> I what I love about the industry is it makes it more challenging and interesting. As I said, is that tasting wine is very subjective. So I think, and then people who, if they think your wine is good, you know, I tell people if you like a wine, look at the bottle, look if you get the vineyard name and the winemaker and then you can go and buy that wine and you know you'll probably always have a good bottle of wine and sometimes you might have a great bottle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you talked about the, the so some of your children taking over uh, Whistling Ridge in the future here. What do you what do you see in the future for Whistling Ridge? Is it going to be more of the same, or do you see more tinkering coming along? Or? No, I think it'll be about the same. We we're very small. You know, that's another thing is uh, small vineyards and wineries really, I think, have to struggle. Some people think that they're going to be all bought up, they call it, by the larger ones. I hope not, because it seems to attract small vineyards and wineries, a bunch of characters. <laughs> including me, I guess. <laughs> and uh, these people kind of like to, uh, as you call it, tinker. Mm -hmm. They like to uh, try things and... Sort of the character of the industry. Yes, yeah. yes, because I, it, uh, 
well, you have to be dedicated. It's very hard work. When somebody said, I said, you know, you may think it's romantic, but it's just farming. And farming is always very hard work. It's 24-7 all the time. And they said, you have to love what you're doing to stick with it. So what was your, so your husband's background, did he have a farming background as well? No, he worked for Tektronics, electronics person back in the heyday of Tektronics. Mm -hmm. And when I met him, he had his own boat and his own airplane and was flying his airplane. And, and when we moved in up there, Michael Etzel came up and saw the boat and heard he had an airplane. And he looked at my husband and said, those toys won't last long here. And he was right. <laughs> So what was your husband's reaction then? To, you, you warned him about farming. What was his reaction? Oh, he he's a very hard worker. He has to be busy. He's very hyper. Mm -hmm. So he's just, but he's not, I've done most of the vineyard. He's not that, he just likes, you know, working and whatever. And, and uh, he said, you're the farmer. One time we had, when we first started, there was a machine that in those days that would, uh, you would plant your plants and then you'd drive a tractor with a machine that would put a row of plastic over it. Mm -hmm. And you know, you just poke a hole and put the plant through. So, And we all would rent it. And so Michael Etzel used it, and my neighbor Autumn Wynn used it. So Dick and I got out there. And pretty soon Dick came in and he said, you know, you're a lot better with machinery than I am. Can you come out and look at this and see if you can figure it out? I went out and I said, no. So I called Michael. Didn't get an answer, he was gone. I called my neighbor. <laughs> so we were out there still, you know, shouting at each other by this time, <laughs> close to divorce. And so <laughs> Michael walks up and he said, oh, he said, you're trying to figure out how to work the divorce machine. <laughs> they had nicknamed him that, I guess, because we weren't the first couple that were shouting at each other over the machine. <laughs> he laughed so hard, he loved it. They got us started and we got the plastic out. And then my neighbor, Autumn Wind, I looked up my window one day and he, they were laying the plastic and he was driving the tractor of course and his wife was following behind with the shovel and all I could hear was her screaming at him shaking the shovel <laughs> at him and then finally she just threw it at him and luckily she missed and I, I just about died laughing I said the divorce machine at work again <laughs> But that's, that that's didn't amazing. last very long. The plastic was supposed to be biodegradable. <laughs> We're still picking up pieces of plastic in the vineyard from it. It was not a good idea. Oh. So now what they have is what they call an in-row cultivator, a machine that will go along, and when it hits the trunk of the grape plant, it retracts and then pops out again, and so cultivates mm -hmm. between the plants. Of course. Of course, of course, expensive, of course. Everything for the vineyard is expensive. We're getting one of those this year. Uh, before and still some places, you know, everybody wants to be organic, but you have to take uh, control of the weeds in the rows between the plants, especially new plantings. And so we've all used uh, uh, glyphos, I want to say Roundup, Roundup. It's, anyway, it's Roundup commercially for the novice. And uh, nobody wants to use that. I found out years ago that what happens is that gets the plant sucks that down. Even though it's a foliar spray, it gets down into the roots and then gets down into the soil. And with our heavy clay soil, that's not a good solution. So, mm. so as you as you kind of look back over your time in Oregon wine, what are you what are you proudest of? Proudest of? Yeah. What are you proudest of?
oh gee whiz. I guess just of surviving, <laughs> being able to get through those tough times and in the hard long days and harvest time is always very very intense and very difficult especially for the winemaker they get maybe three or four hours of sleep a night because it seems like you always have to get the grapes in now mm -hmm. because we always seem to get rain when the grapes are ripe and so it's uh, in 2000 was it 2005 it was such a rainy cold fall and I remember Marcus coming out and we were looking at the Pinot and he said, well, he said, what do you think? We can pick now, he said, or there's a window. We're going to have a few days of sunshine in about five days. Or do you want to gamble and wait? And I looked at him and I said, I said, I'll gamble. He said, okay. So we got those grapes in and that year got such a bad name. Mm -hmm. Nobody wanted it, so we just sat on ours. Marcus sat on his, We all, and, and pretty soon, and this is something surprising about the wines in that Ribbon Ridge, Abbey. all of a sudden, my God, they started coming around, and they're some of the best wine we ever made. So I'm sort of a believer in a cool fall harvest, mm -hmm. but it takes a long time for the wine to come around, and then it will just change like that on you in the bottle. You just. It's another thing you have to watch, just like the vineyard. All of a sudden it's ready to pick, all of a sudden the wine is ready to drink. So you have to keep what's called a library and keep tasting. We took a 2002, was the same thing, to a get-together uh, when Bryce had died and uh, Michael and uh, Bill Pond came over and they said, what are you going to do with that 2002? And I said, you know, we've got a lot of it. It's not very good. The last time I tasted it, I guess we'll lower the price and give it away. He said, when's the last time you tasted it? And I, oh, I said, a couple months ago. And they looked at me and they said, that's some of the best wine we've ever had. You better not lower the price and give it away. See, I hadn't been paying attention. And so it, it was another, really yeah, it was another cool, harvest and that's why we held on to the 2005 and crossed our fingers that it would do the same thing but it's all a learning curve you know if you haven't been in the industry and the industry is so young here that it takes years to accumulate some of that knowledge and experience absolutely yeah is there any questions so that's all the questions that I have for you today, Patricia. Uh, is there anything we should have talked about that we didn't? Anything I should have asked you that I didn't? I don't think so. I think you covered everything. Well, thank you so much for your time today, for your answers, for your wonderful stories. I, the divorce machine was a new one to us, and I'm very okay. excited to know about that yeah. now. Oh, that, you should have a picture of that. That should go in your archives. That's, and if you, you should go interview some of these people that I talk about. <laughs> It didn't get absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. it's then afterwards, you know, we could laugh, but it's pretty hard to laugh at yourself when you're <laughs> absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we'll go ahead and uh, we'll let you off the hook here. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast, and thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. 
The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over